HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. It's a butter egg made from plants. Bring more customers in your doors with Just Egg. Start with a free sample at ju.st hrn. Opening soon is sponsored by diageobaracademy.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're talking organization. Not mise en place or keeping your knives in a row, but labor organizing. If any restaurant worker is listening to this and is like, yes, I want something different, but I don't know where to start. First step they just need to do is to find one of us and get plugged in. As independent contractors, they can't directly tell people, you know, when or, or where to work, but by using sort of gamified nudges to push people, that is sort of how they um, move the workforce around. Tune in to Meet in 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. As you may well already know, our podcast focuses primarily on the business of opening restaurants. From ideation to opening day, we have aimed to talk with both the industry's best and the industry's newest to share wins and challenges that are associated with everything from funding to construction to hiring. Today, we've also chatted with vendors that assist in the opening, including legal experts, technology companies, and press relations, but never a hospitality consultant hired expert to come in and assist new or even seasoned entrepreneurs to chart, plan, and enact their vision. So when our friend and longtime Tillit supporter came into the shop for some new threads for his latest consulting gig, we booked him on the spot. We're welcoming Bradford Thompson to the show today. His resume includes experience um, from being named Food and Wines, Best New Chef, and a coveted James Beard Award. And he has helped open loads and loads of restaurants. So welcome to the show, Bradford. Welcome. Thank you, guys. It's great to be on. And um, I didn't know I was the first, so that's exciting. (laughs) You're the first consultant. Um, Yeah, because a lot of times in the past, we've talked to restaurateurs. We've had some like architects and designers and things like that. And um, and comms people. We've done PR episodes, but you're the first one who's like a consulting chef. So how many how many openings have you been a part of now? So I'm up over thirty now. I kind of stopped counting. Holy shit! <laughs> yeah, I was like, I thought you were gonna be like fifteen, but I didn't realize you're in. Yeah, wow. Yeah, 30. I'm in the thirties though. Now is your... I, it it kind of makes me feel old that I've done that many, but it's it's also. Um, you know, I always like to say that, that it sounds so cliche, but there are no two that are even close to being the same. Um, it's it's such an interesting thing that I get to do, and it's it's so stimulating creatively and and mentally each time that it's just it's really like you know the opening you go through, and it's just like wow, we're up to thirty now, and um, each one I feel like I have so much more to learn. That's the kind of the great part about it. That's, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot that you've learned over 30, 30 openings. You, you mentioned that no two are the same, but is there common, is there any like common threads that you've seen? Okay, this is, we're going to get caught up on this at this time. Like what are, tell us some of like the common hiccups that you've seen. Yeah, there's, there's definitely, definitely commonality and there's definitely mistakes that you see people make, um, especially inexperienced restaurateurs, but even the ones that have opened several restaurants, um, they'll kind of get in a rhythm where they like to do things. 
And that's kind of the danger is always like if you just sort of treat it like a routine, like, okay, we've already got four restaurants. We know what we're doing. Um, you sort of take your eye off the details sometimes. So I think the first thing that anyone will tell you is people not having enough capital or allowing enough time to get open. Um, that's something that, you know, there's never enough time and you're never exactly where you want to be, but budgeting for proper training. And, you know, I was listening to your, your last guest, I think it was last week uh, from Chicago. And he was talking about taking a week with his sous chefs to do recipe testing. And I was so happy to hear that because so many people just sort of cram that into a day or kind of do it on the side. And to me, that's the kind of stuff that you don't get a chance to go back and do once you're open and, and really allowing for that time. Yeah. I feel like you usually hear that they do it, that the chef is testing and doing those things the entire time that they're working. And then they hire everybody. And the next day they're like training and working at the same time. It's, it's definitely, I agree with you. Yeah. What, um, tell us Bradford, like what, who is, who is hiring you? now and recently and who should be hiring you <laughs> is it seasoned people that are you know too busy to do it themselves is it people that um are trying to open without a chef partner and, and want to have somebody there to to guide them on that end what, what kind of person is is coming to you yeah that's a that's a really good question because it is all types of people are coming um the the reason i started doing this um my last actual job i was at lever house and it was closed in a very sudden fashion. And I was actually cleaning out my desk and Terrence Brendan called, he had been a friend for a while and said, hey, I just took over a new spot in Tribeca, can you help me get open? And I was like, yeah, sure, I'm not doing anything now, I'll, I'll come and help you. And it was within a week or two of doing that that I realized how much I had accumulated besides cooking over the years of how to put a storeroom together, and training staff and scheduling and all, all the little stuff that goes into doing a quick opening. And it, it kind of went from this in-between jobs mentality to the, there's really a career here in this, there's a business here. And the way I pitch myself in the beginning is most people don't have a chef six or nine months out, but they're making decisions that will affect the chef. Um, so when they sit they meet with an architect and a designer and they design a beautiful kitchen and they pick equipment and then the chef comes in and the hinges are on the wrong side of the, all the fridge doors, or they want to, <laughs> they want to, you know, pull out drawers instead of swinging doors. Those little things make a big difference for, for a kitchen and how efficient it is. And, um, so I kind of put myself in that you don't have a chef, so I'm going to kind of think like a chef for you through this process. And then in addition, I have relationships with architects and designers and, and kitchen equipment supply so that I can kind of leverage those relationships and take that out of an owner's hands. So, you know, the people that I work best with are somewhat experienced that know the things they don't want to do, but they know what has to get done and they can kind of give me, we need to get this kitchen built. I need it negotiated. I need equipment bids all of that stuff um, and really understand their vision for their menu and their concepts so that we build a correct kitchen. And most importantly, we build something that's got flexibility built in. You know, I think that's the thing people sort of get focused on their concept and they lose track of, you know, plans for success and what happens when we get really busy or we add takeout or we build that patio can we sustain ourselves or are we going to have to redesign the kitchen? So really thinking through and saying, what are we building for now? And then how can we add to this and how can we enhance it without spending a ton of money down the road? So that's my long answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's all good things that I think people don't necessarily think about. So when, so what does a typical like consulting engagement look like for you? When do you typically start working with people? How long after open are you with them? What is, you know, or, or does it depend? Yeah. That, um, again, that's, that's really, I wish there was a typical, um, but there isn't, there's, <laughs> you know, typically my best work and my best situation is to get involved, you know, along around the time they hire the architect. 
you know, like right after they sign the lease. Some people I've worked with them to look at spaces before they sign a lease. But ideally, be, you know, when they hire the architect, if I'm involved from that point, those discussions, because a lot of owners don't understand, you know, the, the building codes and don't need to, frankly. But if they're relying just on the architect to sort of guide their their uh, their build process, their design process, and they don't have a chef or a food consultant involved, then they're kind of at the hands of the designer and the architect. And they'll get a beautiful looking space that may not be functional. So ideally, I'm involved from, from that point. Um, and then I like being in the construction meetings and I, you know, I like understanding that process because it makes it better for me to understand where the money's going, where the budget's going, you know, looking at a space and watching it go from, from a dirty something else to a shell to starting to be built, you start to see the vision and you can correct things early enough. It doesn't cost you a ton of money. Um, and then the second part of it is, you know, being with them from the beginning is really understanding what the concept is. And that's another area where people kind of tend to get lost or they get really stuck and they can only be one thing or they don't have a focus at all. And they're just kind of at the whim of the people around them saying, Oh yeah, you should put avocado toast on the menu. And, you know, I have this really good dish. Look, <laughs> here's an Instagram photo. Check this out. You should put this on the menu. And if they don't have that strong point of view, it's really easy to get washed up in that. I know that's how we had the great avocado toast expansion of the odds. <laughs> I mean, it's like literally it was just on every menu because everybody's like, we have to have avocado toast on the menu. Yeah. Um, it, where so you mentioned common places where like you see money going and things because most people are like get me out of the construction phase this is a shit show and a disaster so it's kind of it's kind of refreshing to hear somebody being like i like construction i, I like being there to help I with walked, the gc i walked to space this morning i love it to, to me it's it's like if you go to the market and you get a you know you get a box of stuff from the market and you go back to your kitchen it's it's like this endless possibility when you're in a space that's early in construction or just being put together because you can still, you know, you go different times a day, you see what the light looks like. You see people walking out front, you get to know the neighborhood. You really start to understand the space as a living, breathing thing, not just as this box that you're going to put a restaurant in. And the more you understand that and the more you're there for that, to me, you, you have a better chance of really kind of getting the neighborhood and, and tweaking your concepts to really fit your neighborhood. So yeah, I, I love it. Tell us a little bit, Bradford, have you, I assume you've worked probably with, with different levels of budget. Yes. Uh, tell us about the difference between working with, you know, a very bootstrapped tight budget space versus, versus a very well-funded big corporate project. Yeah. It's, you know, there's, there is a difference obviously in the money you're spending. Um, I think that the attitude you know, whether you're spending $3 million or 150000 and, you know, your relative is a construction manager, your, your approach is kind of the same. Um, you really have to, first of all, be positive and resilient because um, no matter what you're spending, you're probably going to at some point be at risk of going over budget. And, and it's really how you approach the decision making when you start to go over budget you know, where do you decide to trim and how do you decide to trim? And and I just, I always advise people that, you know, the two things that get overlooked, like the, the two first things that get cut from budgets are often lighting and music in, in a sit-down restaurant. And those are the two things that you don't notice so much when they're really done well and you notice when they're cheap. Um, so those right. two things I always advise people not to cut if they can help it. And then when it comes to equipment, you can save money, you know, doing auctions or going on eBay and finding pieces. But I, I always advise for that, like, just understand that revenue producing pieces of equipment are probably not where you want to try and chance. Like, you, you know, if you can save right. on some stainless steel tables and hand sinks and smallware is great, go for it. But if you really want to buy a used, you know, six burner, double oven, it's going to be the mainstay on your line. That's probably not the smartest idea because if some, <laughs> at some point it's going to break because it's somebody else. You run the risk of repairs, stuff. right? Right. Yeah. And then 
it's not even the repairs, it's what it's revenue producing. Like it's a hand sink's right. not producing revenue. And if it breaks, right. you'll fail an inspection if they come in. You can find a way around it for a day or two. But you know, if your stove breaks, you're screwed on a Saturday. So right. you talked about going over budget. How many how many places have you seen stay on budget or under budget? Um the thing about budgets is they change. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds so like that, was, already, that was a donut. <laughs> <laughs> is that evasive enough for you? No, I mean, like, we, <laughs> we had a, um, I worked at a kosher restaurant several years ago, like a really fine dining kosher restaurant that turned out to be a lot of fun and really interesting project. And they went in with a budget um, and it went over, but like towards the end of construction, it was, you know, there was some landmark issues with the building and a couple of mistakes in construction. And it was on the verge of going over. Um, and, you know, they got another investor and they kind of adjusted the budget. So, yeah, it went over the initial, but they were able to cover it with an investor and it got open. And, you know, it was a it was an interesting place and it, and it ended up the construction was great. The design was great. So, you know, the other one, one of my favorite ones is the Gumbo Bros in Brooklyn. Um, you know, he he did most of it himself. He had people that he worked with and he opened under budget and, you know, opened on time and, and opened successfully. He just opened his second place in Nashville. Um, so he was an example of like, no one was going to get him to overspend. He knew construction. He got his equipment, most of it secondhand. He made it work. Um, he, he was very resourceful and very determined and they got open under budget and on time just by, they kind of muscled their way through it. And, um, you know, he just opened a second one that was much bigger and bigger budget and all that. But he still, you know, had that mentality. And it was it was actually kind of cool to see him sort of challenge me as I was advising him and, and really succeed and really like show that it can be done. You know, if you're smart and you've got some resources, it can be done. For the budgeting piece, like where do you see people? Is there one specific item in construction that people go over time and time again? Or is it just depending on you know, the space and, and, you know, where they are, is there like something, you, you know, when you're looking at budgets in the beginning, you're like, try to pad this or, you know, move stuff around here. Yeah. I think, I don't know. It's tough. I think that equipment we're usually able to, you know, I'll usually give a, a bigger number than what they need so that it can, there's room to kind of work it down. Um, you know, I think people don't always allow for contingencies with construction they, you know, once they get a budget and a timeline, you know, you've, that's why it's important. You've got to be there every week, every two weeks at the, at the minimum to sort of see the pace of construction and see how they're working and, and hear what things are coming up. Because um, everything in a vacuum is really not a big deal during construction. But the way that things can affect the next step of the progress, um, it can become a big deal. There was actually, there was one place we built and um, the the soda, the Coca-Cola guy came and, you know, we were debating, do we do bottle service or do we do the guns? And I'm always the proponent of not doing guns. I think they're filthy. Um, and, you know, for an upscale bar, I just think bottle service looks better. It's easier to control, you know, but then there's more trash and there's more storage area, et cetera. But those, those guns with the fruit flies and the staff just drains them. Mm. I'm just always kind of <laughs> advising not to use them. So, but they decided to think differently about fountain soda. Yeah. yeah sorry. Yeah. I, not to, I mean, listen, there's a lot of things like there's worse things in, in fountain soda, but fountains, maybe not as much as the guns. Um, yeah. But I, I said, okay, it's fine. I get it. You want to do the guns? No problem. So we, we got the Coca-Cola guy in, he did his measurements. He said, I'll see you, you know, three days before opening, I'll come and do the installation put the rack in, et cetera. So the message was conveyed to the construction team. You know, here's where they're, they're going. We need a hole cut here. They're going to run their, their tubes up through the hole. It was a basement up to a second floor. And nobody double-checked, you know, the size of the, of the chase that the tubes had to go in. And it didn't seem like a big deal. And it kind of, everyone forgot about it. So two days before opening, <laughs> this, this beautiful Italian marble had been laid behind the bar 
Like oh it was goodness. behind the bar around to the front. It all just been set. They were ready to do the installation. The guy shows up. The hole is two inches too small. So oh. <laughs> you know what you know what happened. Back, so back to bottles. We had no. The, the the owner was like, no, no, I paid for Coca. You couldn't get out of the Coca-Cola contract. It it was a, a shouting match on the construction site between the GC, the soda guy, the oh owner. And it turned out they had to cut the <laughs> tile. They had to cut the tile. They had to order two new pieces to reset once the hole was recut. And it was a three-day delay for, for a chintzy soda guns. To put some code. Like, yeah. Wow, that was so you uh, still don't like soda guns. No, it's not especially <laughs> you don't like them. Yeah, yeah it was, now it was there's awful. like a hard no on the soda gun. Yeah. But if you think about what a horrible like a, thing to like get delayed. A, a two inch measurement, you know, on site that someone didn't double check and it cost the owner two days of potentially, you know, doing his pre-opening. So that, yeah. th- those type of things, you know, like I said, that's not a big deal in the scope of things. But then when it comes to how it affected the marble guy and the plumber and everything else, it became a big deal. So, yeah, details. <laughs> Details, details are important. matter. Yeah. Um, Bradford, do you, so as far as your business is concerned, do you, are you doing, do you do different levels? Sorry, I can't get my question out. Do you, okay. do you have different levels of commitment or are you, will you review someone's business plan and give them advice on getting going or are you, you know, you're along for the ride um, for, for the whole shebang or, or nothing? Yeah, no, I do. I do all different levels. Um, some people just want, menu and recipe work um you know i i in case you can't tell i kind of like to talk and i'm really interested in the whole process so like if you want me to come and work on your menu like i'm going to notice health department stuff and why did you put this fridge here and like i'm going to share that information because i think i just think it you know we can all help each other with our experiences be better operators um but yeah i do different levels i used to actually teach at um at ICC, the French Culinary Institute, um, I was part of a, a food business class, and there was about eight of us that taught it for the last six, seven years um, until the school closed. And so I had access to some really smart people from HR and business plans and all that. So we'd all kind of share clients or you know people that needed help and look at kitchen drawings or look at menus and, and help people with that. So yeah, it, all of it is interesting to me in in different ways and i yeah i i do all levels of that how many consulting clients do you take on at a time are you like working on multiple openings right now or are you just with one client dedicated usually two or three at a time um they're they never line up the, the way they look they, they're gonna line up on you know when you put gantt charts together and like oh i yeah. get a client here and they'll open and then i'll start this one they they never line up i can guarantee you that like two inspections at two different places will be on the same day or two openings <laughs> that were three months apart are going to end up somehow in the same week. Um, but yeah, I, I usually two or three. Um, right now I'm working with uh, Patroon Restaurant and um, working on primarily menu stuff and getting them reopened and doing some seasonal specials, and um, which has been really a lot of fun. And it's a, it's a great restaurant that's been there for a long time. Um, and then there's a couple seasonal places that I work with in the summer. And then there's a couple um, that are under construction right now uh, that, that should open this summer. So it's kind of, you know, varying levels at each one. Some I'm in the kitchen with my tillet apron cooking away. And some I'm, you know, just on site, um, just talking to construction teams and looking at placements and making sure that they get open properly. Um, and then the, the seasonal one is just more kind of training the staff for the summer and getting them reopened and getting their inventories up. So, yeah, it's it's always different parts of my brain. And that's what I love about it. Tell us a little bit, Bradford, about the um, the ones you're working on now. I think you mentioned to me about an all electric pizza restaurant. Yes. So um, downtown Brooklyn, um, it's going to be called Pizza 63 on, on uh, Lafayette avenue in brooklyn um so the the owners have the building and um there was no no hood and no gas and they want to they want to do all electric and you know there's some the thing with technology now there's so much good equipment uh that you can do an electric an all electric kitchen and really get good product 
Um, so these electric pizza ovens, you know, they burn about 600 degrees and we're, you know, we're able to get a really nice crust. And I, I have a, a baker friend that I work with uh, who really understands dough and he's got a, a source for flour that's milled upstate. So we're able to get a really interesting crust in, a, in an electric oven. Um, and we're going to do tap cocktails. I've heard different things on, on venting and electric kitchens. Is it, can you do an electric kitchen and skate by the venting rules or do you still need venting in place? Well, you, you need to vent, but you don't need a type one fire rated hood. So the, the expense of venting comes when you've got to put the black iron in. Um, so when you're, when you have grease producing, you know, when you're roasting meats or you're cooking with gas and you're grease producing and, and there's a risk of a flame, um, and you need a type one hood. So you need the hood, the fire suppression, and then the black iron that lines the, the vent out the building. That's where the, it gets really expensive. Um, so we're able to do with these ovens, direct venting just to, to remove the heat, but we don't have to do the full black iron. And, and you know that do you still have to go to the top of the building, or can you just go out the side? Well, window? fortunately, it's a shorter building. This can just go out the side because it's just heat. Okay. Um, yeah. But if a, you were you know, in a in black, a brownstone, would you have to go to the top? Uh, probably in a brownstone, yes. Um, but okay. you know, Alex black is iron. really trying to build. It's often a question that young entrepreneurs with a lower budget will ask is if, can I pull this off with an electric kitchen and will that get me around, you know, the exorbitant cost of, right. of venting and ansel systems and stuff that go in. Yeah. And I'm seeing, I, you know, I live in Harlem and I'm seeing little things pop up in the ground floor of Brownstone, mostly coffee shops. Um, but you know, they'll have an induction, a panini press, a circulator, and you can actually, you can put a nice menu together. Um, one of the projects I worked on was Taco Dumbo. And um, the first one was in Dumbo in Brooklyn. And we did all electric, um, not even vented. It was it was like a white box. And we, we didn't even have to do venting. We had a self-vented rotisserie. Um, it, yeah, it was crazy. It, it would cook about Set nine. It, it. <laughs> it was like nine chickens at a time, I think it cooked. And it was a little rotating wow. rotisserie with a little self-venting um, box that basically a little scrubber that sat on top of it that cleaned the air. Um, so we didn't, you know, the place smelled like chicken, but that's not a bad thing. Um, <laughs> no, it's like grandma's house. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And then we had um, steam table and we had a griddle and we had a, a CVAP uh, cook and hold oven. So, you know, we cooked brisket, we cooked chickens, uh, we rendered the chicken skin and put the, put the uh, grivenous and the guacamole, like we could do everything. And, and it, the place was built in three months, you know, without inspections. And it was just, it was crazy. It was like, it couldn't process how quickly it happened because we didn't have to deal with the hood. So, and the gas inspection and all the other stuff. So yeah, it was, it was kind of cool. What's the typical timeline for you that you're seeing these days is like, I mean, three months is obviously extremely fast, but you know, on average, what are you seeing in New York right now? It's still, you know, nine months is like the safe bet from, from signing the lease to, to getting open. Um, you know, oddly the, the supply chain, like the effect of COVID it's, it's just so funny how everyone's like, hurry up and get back you know, which there is no getting back where this is a new frontier we're, we're living in. And, and rightfully, so, I think it's a good thing. But the fact that, you know, I'm talking to people not in the industry, like, oh, I can't wait to get back to restaurants. And I had to wait an hour for brunch. And I'm like, there's <laughs> this, this staffing issue right now that's going on is not going to change. Like when unemployment ends, this is people kind of rethinking where they belong in the industry and how to fix their life. But all the other ancillary industries, like the drivers for the vendors, you know, I, um, one of the companies I order from, they're short 40 drivers. So there's no second deliveries wow. in Manhattan right now for this company, which is, you know, if you mess up or you're really busy and you need a second delivery, this company, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, and I'm seeing with construction, you know, like the lead time to get a walk-in built it's, it's going up every time I talk to somebody, it's, you know, it was eight to 10 weeks. Now it's 12. Now everybody's getting busy reopening. You know, it's harder to get service techs. It's harder to get things custom built. 
because there's just not a lot of laborers in, in all these industries. So, you know, nine months is still a safe bet, but you've really got to be planning well and ordering ahead of time and, you know, staying ahead of any potential issues uh, because, you know, mistakes now, you get put to the back of the queue and it could be, you know, nine months could turn into a year easily. Yeah, we understand supply chain issues. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, that's right. (laughs) For sure. I think the other challenge is that um, I think the customer sentiment has lost a little bit of its patience now that we're we're sort of all going back. I I don't think that's rightfully should be the case. I think we all still need to remain, you know, super appreciative and patient and respectful and understand that you can't just flip the lights back on and and run back in and everything will be like it was. We're also, we we have to have, you know, a very reduced number of restaurants available. A lot of restaurants have closed and gone, which puts a lot of pressure on everyone else to sort of shoulder that impact and try and, you know, provide meals and the level of service that, you know, we were all accustomed to before pre-pandemic. I'd love to hear you guys say that. And obviously we are all very connected in the industry and very sensitive to it. Um, I just hope that people, you know, a year ago, everybody, you know, were dying to go to their favorite restaurant and support the industry and post things on Instagram. You know, I just hope that people can can come to grips with the reality of what food costs, what it costs to get food on a plate, you know, what the labor, like what it looks like to be an employee in a restaurant, you know, to to understand, you know, complain, oh, don't, you know, why are we raising the minimum wage? Like even when it's raised and even that wages are up now, it's still barely livable in New York. And, you know, at some point the customer is going to have to participate. You know, it just it always makes me laugh that people go to a grocery store and they see prices going up of groceries and they see gas going up and somehow don't think that that's going to translate to their restaurant that's reliant on gas and groceries and supplies that the, the cost isn't <laughs> going to get passed on, you know. So I just hope that people become more aware of that. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. I mean, this is something that people have been talking about for a while in the industry about how can we, you know, get rid of tipping and charge more and it's been abandoned, but maybe this is the time where the shift really happens. Are there any other like cultural shifts you're seeing within the restaurants that you're currently opening that you feel like has been exacerbated or um, sped up maybe because of COVID? Like, are they already building for takeout and delivery and those kind of things? Is there any other? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the delivery thing, I'm still trying to get my head around the delivery thing because obviously the the quick shift was everyone went to delivery takeout. And then you started to see during the reopening, fine dining sort of started dropping it because they're not built for that. And, And it's not financially viable for a lot of them. Um, but, you know, as a consumer, again, are we willing to pay so much to have food delivered? Like for the convenience, the 30%, the tip, the delivery fee, whatever it is, you know, are we going to continue to pay for that because we value convenience? Um, and not all food should be delivered. You know, some stuff, you know, the idea of a restaurant is to go and interact with people and experience the ambiance and everything. And, and I saw a lot of people trying to figure out how to deliver the hospitality aspect along with the food. And some did it well, and some did packaging better than others. Um, but, you know, if delivery does continue, I think there's certain models that work better for it. I don't think everybody should look at, well, it's the future. I've got to build a delivery arm because not all food delivers well. And, and I think that you've got to decide you know, from your menu or from your concept, does it make sense to deliver it in the first place? And then if it does, what's the most effective way and, and what's the most, um, I guess, the the way where I can get it, where there's a perceived value. I don't feel like I'm being raped on the, on the charges from the third-party delivery and the guest doesn't feel like the $9 hamburger costs $20 they have delivered. You know, there's got to be somewhere in between where we can make it fair and and reasonable. Yeah, I'm I'm like I'm all in on restaurants and like ready to sit down, have the hospitality, have the experience, have the service. And I'm with you that people like the guests need to understand that they're just going to have to start paying, paying more. Um, Tell us 
last question before we move on to like our, yeah. our little lightning round. When it when people are considering hiring a chef consultant like yourself, what should they what should they know before going into and starting and engaging one of these conversations? Yeah, that's that's great. I, you know, I've been working on that. I I don't have a great document yet, but I've been working on that. You know, before you sit down, I think you should really know your budget, um, or or at least where your budget's going, and understand uh, where bringing a consultant and fits into that. Um, you should really be comfortable with your concept. And to me, the, I guess the first thing I should say is like being comfortable with your, your vision or your concept and being able to tell me in a sentence or two what it is, you know, why you're opening a restaurant. And I think that that, if you can do that clearly, then you can navigate the things that are going to come along the way as long as you can return to your vision. Um, if you if you have a foggy vision and things get difficult, you know, I said earlier, you, you can get dissuaded by people around you or opinions of people that taste things or things you read. Um, so really understanding what you're trying to open is the most important. Understanding your budget. And then when you do talk to a consultant, you know, treat it like an interview and, and have a couple meetings and understand does this person have, you know, the personality to deal with the things that are going to come up and help me navigate what I don't know? Um, is this a person that I'm willing to spend time with uh, to kind of work through this? Because it's it's kind of like bringing a, a partner on for a part of time. That it's someone you're going to bounce all your ideas off of. You're going to navigate difficult situations with. So it's got to be someone you're comfortable being around and, and sort of trusting their perspective. And then, you know, the cooking part probably isn't the most important because you're going to hire a chef at some point, but having someone that's an experienced enough chef that can understand different types of food and can help you with that relationship with bringing a chef on board. Cause that's also, you know, that handoff is, is super important as well. So those are the things. Yeah, that's, super helpful yeah that makes sense yeah. yeah for sure it's it's interesting that you said the cooking part's not that like it's like you're a chef but the cooking part's not the most important part because it's yeah. sure it's like you're building the bones well, for the infrastructure which the sad reality sounds like are, yeah. are important to know the the reality that i've come to is that you know after all these years of cooking and being in chef-centric restaurants you know chef owners that you know people return to restaurants they want good food um but they return to restaurants for the way they feel and, and usually the food isn't always the primary driving force. And that's a hard thing to swallow as a chef, but you're part of, you're a big part of it. But I think it's really important that, you know, people return because of the way a place makes them feel or, you know, the emotions that it inspires while they're there. Um, and the food is, uh, it can be, and is a part of that, but it's not just the food. It's a sad thing to swallow <laughs> for Alex. I, like, I see, I see all the wheels I, turning no, in our and Alex's just, former I'm, chef brain. I'm you're like but trying to think don't you agree, the best Alex? way to say it, but it's. I, I agree 100. I mean, my my thought is is that that you're always replaceable. Yeah. And I, I know that's not the best way of saying it, but even the best chef, there's always going to be someone in two years that's better than you. Right. Well, if you and do so mentorship, like, right, that should the, be the this way idea it is, that right? no one can do this but you that end of it is, is just not, you know, unfortunately that's for most, almost everyone, that's just not accurate. And, and someone else and, and having those, the bones and the efficiencies and those things that you talked about, those are going to be more lasting. And yeah, that'll be a as is the culture business. of the place and how you yeah. make the, the guests feel, I think but that's also very liberating you know, at the end to, of the day. You're right. To understand, like for you to say that and to understand that you cook for a long time as well. Like once you kind of come to terms with that, then you, you're sort of free to, to cook really what how you feel. You're not like trying to cook 100%. someone else's food. You're not trying to put on airs or stay up with the trends. You're just, you know, like, I don't know, like someone like Jonathan Waxman is so comfortable in who he is and his food is so good and it's so authentic to who he is. It's not, you know, it's not trying to be anything other than, than what he does well. Um, and, you know, there's many chefs like that. I don't mean to just pick it, but he's just someone that I think of like as being comfortable in their own body and, and who they are and who they are as a chef. Um, 
And I think once you reach that point, that's when people really resonate. You know, when you're you're not cooking for the press or you're not cooking for an Instagram follow or whatever it is, it's just you're cooking food that means something very special to you. And it's coming from a place inside that only you have. All right, cook what you want. It will set you free. That was a great takeaway. I love it. Um, cool. Let's go. Okay, last last quick question. Yeah. Where does one look for like chef consultants like you? It's like, it doesn't seem like there's like a Google database just ready to happen. It seems like a lot of your clients are referrals, but maybe people in other cities, where do, where do people get in touch with people like you? Um, my add on to that is... You don't obviously don't tell us what your fee is, but what can we expect to pay? Is it always cash up front or is there ever a, an investment partnership that, that happens with a consultant? Uh, yes to all that. There, there, I <laughs> typically, I try and look at things on a project basis. Um, I don't like charging by the hour because I feel like it, it, you're cheating yourself because you're watching the clock as an owner or it's it just, it's a difficult way to work for me. Um, I like to do a project. I like to you know sit down and figure out how much time and effort and resources I'm going to put into a project and give myself the timeline and say, here's the project fee for this amount of time. And, you know, with a, a window, if we go over X amount, it's fine. And if we go over that, then there's an extra fee. And it really sets everyone to just start working. Um, and we're working for a timeline. And we're working together. The smaller projects, you know, recipe testing or things like that, then it's like hourly or daily rates. Um, and then equity is something that, you know, I've talked about with several clients over the years. Some some worked out, some didn't. Um, so it, it to me, it's always like going to it as a project base. And then nine months in, you have a really good idea if you can kind of work with this person going forward as a partner or you know, trust them to to have equity. Um, if you've earned your your way in, or you want to buy in, um, you know someone well. If you've gone through nine months opening a restaurant together, you've you've seen the good and the bad, and and it's a great test. And it's like you know what, let's be partners. Or this was great, but I don't think we should work together. Um, so yeah, it really there's no set answer. Um, and then as to where to find them, you know I've. All my work I've been fortunate has been word of mouth. And I think, you know, you start in the industry, if you're looking for a consultant, is you reach out to people that have either opened restaurants or worked on building restaurants and ask if they know anyone. Um, and then, you know, chefs that are between jobs or chefs that are, you know, have free time to do something on the side, you know, you're not going to pay them full time. You just say, you know, I need X amount of hours. I want you to look at these drawings and walk the site with me and advise me as to how you would build this and, and kind of start that way. But yeah, we need to put a resource together for, for people, I think. Yeah. I think it would be, be helpful. See, it's like, you have to know to know. Yeah. Y'all it's been a long pandemic. I'm ready to saddle up next to the bar which is finally allowed to happen here in New York City. And thankfully, there are free tools to get your team ready. Yeah, um, Diazio Bar Academy has a free online resource for hospitality professionals um, that offers lots of resources, not only for bartenders, but for the bar managers, the venue owners, and, um, and everybody that's involved to get that process up and running. Yeah, and did Alex mention that they are free tools and all you need to do is sign up for Diageo Bar Academy? And if you'll notice, I mean, you'll notice that um, a lot of times you get into it and there's a lot more than just drinks behind the bar, <laughs> right? It seems seems um, obvious, I guess, but uh, Diageo will sort of point out some of those things that you're missing and, and help you deal with them. And those are things like... Um, costing out your menu and that goes from everything from the juices to the straws to the paper napkins that sit on top of the bar. Right, so get your free profitability calculator at diageobaracademy.com that's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com become a member and sign up for the newsletter today. It's completely free and you will be amazed at all they have to offer. That's D-I-A-G-E-O 
baracademy.com. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. Just Egg is now the fastest growing egg brand in the United States. Bring more plant-based customers into your doors with easy-to-use Just Egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st/hrn. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier with no cholesterol and less saturated fat. And it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, it's delicious. For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st/hrn. Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble, great for omelets, frittatas, stir-fries, and french toast. There's also frozen pre-baked folded version that's ideal for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andres called Just Egg mind-blowing, and Bon Appetit says, "So good, I feel guilty eating it." Put the fastest growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st/hrn. All right, let's go to quick lightning rounds. This is meant to be just a quick one to two word answers off the top of your head. Okay. Um, I'll start. It's a, don't worry, it's not I'm a nervous, test. It's not I'm like multiple choice. Like, uh, it, don't be, like don't be scared. This is <laughs> like Jeopardy. Don't worry, there's no big prize at the end. Um, what's the best part about being a consultant? I would say uh, freedom uh, that I'm able to work when I like to work for the most part. Mm-hmm. What's the hardest part? Uh, the freedom and having to budget my time and be very <laughs> smart with when I work and how I work. <laughs> yes, I hear that. Um, tell us your biggest win from an opening. Biggest win from an opening. Um, wow, that is that is a really hard question. I I would say opening night at Miss Lily's. Um, to see how many people we crammed into a small space and how much food was able to be um, served out of a very, you know, a 10 foot line, very tiny kitchen. That was, and it's food that's very personal to me. And so that was probably the, one of the bigger wins. Oh, to be crammed into a small restaurant space <laughs> yeah, again. I'm exactly. looking for, I actually am looking forward oh, to that. Just saying, just saying <laughs> that made me feel kind of weird. Like, oh, did we talk about that yet? Ooh. Yeah, that was like, you know, it was t- it was 10 years ago, people. It's okay. Yeah. No. I can keep my six feet. Bradford, what's the biggest <laughs> oh shit moment aside from the uh, Coca-Cola pipe? Biggest <laughs> oh shit moment. Um, and that's not a reflection on Coca-Cola. I'm sure they're a wonderful company. Yeah, I'm sure they're great people to deal with. Um, i got to be honest with you. Every opening has had an oh shit moment. Um, I don't know that I could pick one out. I got the, the, the Rowe Hotel uh, used to be the Milford Hotel. I basically opened the the lobby food and beverage program a a few years back and was sort of acting food and beverage director. And um, one of the biggest oh shit moments was everybody paid cash. And the amount of times that I had to go to the bank the first two days to get change in Times Square, that was, (laughs) that was kind of oh shit. Like what is going on here? Um, (laughs) What is going on? It's not the sexiest story. cash? Like that's another thing. Yeah. Yeah, But it's true. It was all cash. Everyone had stayed there. Yeah. It was so weird. Yeah. That is so funny. Um, all right. And this is one that we, we like to ask everybody. Uh, and last one, what's your, what's the best business resource can be a podcast or a book or a person that you've come across that people in the industry should know about. Besides you guys, obviously. Right. Um, (laughs) I, I like, I gotta say culinary agents for staffing. Um, I love what they've done with their, their site. They've become a real resource for for managing people and um, finding talent. And my friend Jerry Cuveras at Samtel is probably the smartest kitchen person that I've ever encountered Um, and the kind of person that I can call. And if somebody wants a hot dog roller for a 7-Eleven, I can call him and he'll give me a breakdown on the technology and which company makes the best one 
what's the best value for the dollar? How, you know, he'll tell me how big it is off the top of his, he's like, oh, it's 18 inches wide. So you need a stainless steel counter. But at a gas station, they're only 20 inches. Like he'll rattle stuff off out of his head. I, he's, he's like an encyclopedia for me. If I ever get stuck with kitchen equipment, he's my first call. So those are my two. Kitchen, kitchen equipment guy. Yeah. Um, you want to do some opening soon? Yeah, we like to shout out opening soon announcements. Anybody you want to shout out for opening soon or maybe recently reopened? Yeah, sure. I mean, if, if you're in Midtown um, and you can get to Patroon, they've got a gorgeous rooftop and they've never done dining on the roof before. So for the rest of the summer, they'll be dining on the roof at Patroon. Um, incredible steaks, seafood, cocktails, and then keep an eye out for Pizza 63 uh, in Brooklyn on Lafayette, probably midsummer. Midsummer, cool. Um, Dirt Candy, who Amanda was already on the show. Um, I loved her earlier. On your show, by the way. Yeah, that was a good one. Um, so if you haven't listened to episode 72 with Amanda, definitely go back and listen. It was really important. All about um, the restaurant relief fund. It was about the restaurant relief yeah. fund and about, you know, a lot about the wages and, and what people are getting paid. But they're opening this Thursday. So congrats to them. And then Mace Cocktail Bar, who's um, from the team behind, um, they have like a, they have a bunch of other bars too. They're opening on um, on the 21st. He's actually a Katana friend Kitten, also. That team. They have a couple. Yeah, uh, from Katana Kitten. and Yeah, and, and Zach's got a couple of coffee places uptown. Uh, Dear Mama Coffee. Your mama. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yes, we're excited for that. Go ahead. Half of New York is reopening on May 21st, so get yes. ready to go out. And get ready that. to eat. Um, Bradford, how do we find you on social online? Uh, Bellyful NYC on Instagram and uh, LinkedIn. My name at LinkedIn, and then I'm working on building a new website right now. So hopefully that'll be up soon. There you go. Yeah. A resource for people looking for restaurant consultants. There you go. Real website. Um, and you can yes. find us at We Are Opening Soon and at Till It NYC. Thanks, Bradford. Thank you so much. That Thank was you awesome. guys so much. Opening Soon is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. And connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You could also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.